we're going to look uh, going to look at, into, into the meaning of Christmas, but that brings us into dogma and the Christian tradition and you know these concepts and terms that we've developed, the hypostatic union, God and man and so on. Uh, and the danger of that is that it immediately becomes very very solemn and very distant and abstract. Of course, the one thing it should not be is abstract, because it's about incarnation. So it's very important, and the Jews are very good, is being able to laugh at the most solemn things. And, uh, you know, there's the fundamentalists who can't laugh. Uh, but Jews can have a good fight with God and still remain faithful. There's this great story of them in Auschwitz, in the concentration camp, and a group of the scholars and rabbis were discussing it one evening after they'd been put back into their huts. And uh, they said, somebody said, well, look at where we are now, and we've been faithful to the covenant, our, our you know, commitment to, to God, and God has surely failed us. He's failed. He's broken his covenant, his, his contract with us. So they decided to put God on trial. So they convened a rabbinical court and listened to the two arguments and concluded that, uh, yes, pretty obvious God seemed to have abandoned his people and he had broken the covenant. And then the president of the court, sitting in the hut at Auschwitz, declared the sentence. God had, was guilty of breaking the covenant. And then he said, now it is time for the evening prayer. <laughs> <laughs> so, Another example of that is Desmond Tutu. You can see it on YouTube. Uh, he's telling the story of Mary and Joseph coming to Bethlehem and Joseph trying to find a, a room for them. And he goes to the inn and he says to the innkeeper, um, do you have a room? And the man says, no, we're full, completely full. And Joseph says, but my wife is very close. She's having a baby, she's very close. And the innkeeper says, well, that's not my fault. And Joseph said, it's not my fault either. <laughs> and Tutu just goes off cackling with laughter. So that's a sign of, you know, true, and that you really engaged with the, the, the deep meaning, I think, and the solemn, or the, the deep meaning, the serious meaning, but you don't become solemn about it. As Father John used to say, seriousness in life leads to joy, but solemnity, you know, being too solemn, too boring about things, you know, being solemn leads to frivolity. So... 
So let's try and be serious about reflecting on what Christmas means. Yesterday we looked at um, why Christmas uh, happens at the end of the year, or the beginning of the year. It's always associated with the, the shortest day of the year and the longest night. And that led us into, into that exploration of, uh, of, of darkness and uh, of death. And how there is no death, there's no birth without death. What is death? Death is the great separator, the great end. So there's no birth without an end, no beginning that doesn't point to something that has ended. And similarly, there's no end, no death that doesn't, deep within its darkness and its despair, have the seed of new life. So, we looked at that. We, we re- remember that quote from Angelus Silesius, don't, I don't believe in death, he said. Amazing. I don't believe in death. Because every dying, every moment is a dying. And if we enter into each moment as a dying, we will enter into a new and richer life. So there's something in us that at times may be consoled and uh, encouraged and energised by that. And at other times we don't want to hear it. Because it's easier to die. It's easier to give up. It's easier, as we were saying, to get stuck in this sort of cycle, in the dark part of the cycle. I just don't want to have to climb back up out of this pit that I've fallen into. Just leave me alone here. And that's why that's why we have Samaritan helplines. People who who are desperate. And why we need each other. Because uh, there are times when the, the desire for extinction is stronger, seems stronger, can be stronger, can be stronger than the awareness of this seed of new life that is eternal life, that is continually offering and, and initiating new, new life, a new beginning. So, that's the human struggle. We looked at why we celebrate Christmas in December uh, rather than uh, July. and why we celebrate Easter in the spring. So, so because of this, we can die with hope. Now, very rarely, but beautifully when you do, and you meet someone who is physically dying, and they're dying well. I spoke with Graham Watson last night, and he's a strong voice, and he's hoping that he'll be alive until next Sunday when they're celebrating their 25th 
wedding anniversary. And uh, he is, he's, it's, he, he said, I, I just hope I can die, have a good death. So I said, I said, you're having a good dying anyway, because he was so, uh, so full of uh, life. And he and his wife, and these next, you know, this short time that they have together, they're living to the full. And he said, I hope, I hope that, uh, he said, I feel that the end of this, what did he call it, the end of this uh, phase or this cycle of life will lead to glory in the next. And, he's, and I said, well, it sounds as if you're already enjoying it, actually, tasting it. So, interestingly, the language he uses, you see, about God, because uh, you've got to use language about God. I hope God will do this for me. We have to use that language of God. But he... It, it's, it's, it's inadequate language because it's, it's uh, humanizing God in the wrong way and uh, dramatizing the relationship in the wrong way. But we have to do it. Where we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and we ask God for forgiveness and so on. That's meaningful, but it's, it's only, in a way, theatrical. So it reveals the reality, but through through something that is fictional, in a way. Uh, but he was living this experience of dying and, and transformation uh, way beyond this language. So we can die to self, and if we do, we can see that every dying takes us through death to a richer, fuller life. So today we could look at what um, birth, the birth of Jesus reveals to us. Why didn't you put that over here, by the way? Your, your phone. Put it there. Here. Yeah. Just no point in putting it over there. Thank you. So, um, no, just, just like that. So what does the birth of Jesus show us about God and humanity? And tomorrow we'll look at who do we think Jesus is in the light of the Christmas celebration, the Christmas story. Well, first of all, humanity, really. I think that we spoke yesterday about the great loneliness, that uh, the death, which is part of life, Birth and death make up life. So death is contained in life. And, but we spoke about the, the great loneliness. We spoke about it last night as well. The great loneliness uh, that, of course, death uh, makes us suffer. And this began with Adam, actually, the human loneliness. When God realized it was not good for the human to be alone. And that despite the beauty of the natural world and creation and despite 
the animals, the beauty of the animals, uh, all of which Adam named and understood. And, but he was still unhappy. And so we need an Eve, or Adam needed an Eve, and Eve needs Adam. Anyway, someone's got to come first. So in a patriarchal society, it's, uh, it's done that way. But we have to see beyond the patriarchal aspect of it. Uh, this is true of the human. And what happens when Adam and Eve uh, start playing? They have a family. And the family has problems. One son kills the other. So we begin the human drama. Well, Christmas is not just about Jesus. It's also about the Holy Family. If you look at the tanker that the Dalai Lama gave us some years ago in India, when uh, he unwrapped it, uh, or when I, he asked me to unwrap it, and I was looking at it, and I was expecting some complicated Buddhist uh, symbol or mandala, and I was trying to work out what this scene was, and then, of course, I just saw it, it was the birth of Jesus, uh, done in a Tibetan way with yaks and uh, little bodhisattvas flying in the sky. And the Dalai Lama was so, so, so childlike in his delight in having done this, having ordered this uh, uh, from his monks in Dharamsala to, to make this Tibetan Christian uh, representation. But very clearly, it's the family at the, at the heart of it. Jesus at the heart of the, of the family, but uh, Jesus is not on his own. The family have had a pretty difficult night because they're in a manger, whatever a manger is, probably somewhere where sheep were held. By the second century, they were speaking about it as a cave. And if you go to Bethlehem today, you'll, you'll, go to, you'll, be, you'll see the cave, a cave where he was born. And today we listen to the story of Joseph. Amazing, amazing figure in the story. He's a bit like Mr. Thatcher, you know, or one of these, the, the husband's husband of one of these very strong uh, political women uh, who are vital for the, whole, for the whole enterprise and for the woman's career, but, uh, but have the ability, have the humility and the love for their woman to to stay out of, uh, out of the public uh, picture and just to support. And Joseph has that. And again, it's a, amazing for a patriarchal society to produce this male figure who is there to support a woman. And he's a very strong male figure as well. You know, he, he, he protects them and he looks after them and he leads them in the pictures of, of the Holy Family going into exile 
It's, it's Joseph who leads them into, uh, back to Egypt, or to Egypt. So, the Holy Family icon is a beautiful one, and we see it, the union of opposites, the maternal and paternal aspects of love, united around this, this new creation, this new, new life. So, what about the great loneliness then? Well, we also see in the story, just to take it from the top, that uh, human beings, what does this Christmas story tell us about humanity? Well, it tells us that human beings make mistakes. Joseph forgot to reserve a room at the inn before they arrived. Uh, things go wrong in life, sometimes for, for no fault of our own. They just go wrong. And there are bad consequences. They have to, she has to give birth in these uncomfortable conditions. Before long, they, ha they have to go into exile. So, we are born, human beings are born into suffering and unpredictability where things go wrong. And yet, what do we see? The family. The family that holds, holds us uh, together. The family contains, sort of, uh, protects, contains the human experience of loneliness. Adam, on his own, would have been miserable, despite the fact he was master of the earth. He, he would have been miserable, like a CEO who sacrificed everything and is totally unhappy. Uh, But there is, some, there is an existential loneliness in human condition because death is part of human life. And therefore, the family is what enables us to deal, to deal with loneliness. And now speaking of ideal families, but the best you can do. There are, there are, there are I, I know some ideal families, but no, no family that doesn't have uh, suffering of some kind, no family that doesn't have a sacrifice at the heart of it. Um, So each family is unique, as, as uh, Tolstoy said. But, um, well, I think he said, I think he said that, um, I can always, I always get this wrong. He said, all happy families are the same. All unhappy families are unique. It may be in the other way around, but anyway, he said that. You can think about which, what you think it is. So, 
for all its faults, for all its imperfections, there are good families, there are near-perfect families, and there are really terrible families, dysfunctional families. I met uh, some people at the center in Los Angeles called um, uh, Home, Home, uh, uh, what's it called? Homeboys, thank you. Uh, it was a centre set up by a Jesuit priest to, to help uh, gang members, mostly men, young men, to to start a gang, uh, to get out of gangs and get a life. And I was talking with the young Hispanic who was showing us around, and uh, you know he, he and his brother were born into this this dysfunctional family, parents were drug addicts. Uh, they didn't know, they li literally didn't know where they, where they would sleep that night and they didn't know where their food was coming from, day by day. And sometimes a family member, a cousin or somebody would take them in for a few days you know, out of desperation, but they always felt they were unwanted always felt um, a nuisance, a trouble, you know. So, not surprisingly, they didn't grow up very well. And uh, the gratitude for what homeboys had done for them was, they were just, he, this guy was just so, so thankful. And so full of the desire to live, but he, he said he's, he, 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 was, he just had a, or his girlfriend or his wife, had just had a, a child. So I said, are you, are you, are you, stay, are you, are you spending time with, with him, with the family? And he looked a bit guilty. And he said, well, as much as I can. So... Although he started a new life, he was still carrying with him the pattern of the past. He wanted to be a good father, but he was doing the best he could. So what does a family... What does, so I think, in other words, we think of Christmas as a family occasion. Uh, and in the States it's more Thanksgiving but it's a family occasion, and at the heart of it is the symbol of the human archetype of the family. We are all born into something, into some kind of family. So the family contains, should contain, does contain the human experience of loneliness. It strengthens the child, it protects the child to deal with death. Because this child is going to die from the minute it's born. It's, it's dying. It's dying. It's like, you know, babies are just so noisy and so uh, desperate when they don't get what they want. And they're hungry or they're two years old and they don't get the toy they wanted or can't do what they want to do. They suffer so much. You feel this, this hell that they're in, you know, and then two seconds later they're smiling and they're happy. From, from bliss to from heaven to hell in, in a moment. So they have, to, they have to be strengthened to go through this, dying every moment. And then they come out of, away from the breast and they come 
into infancy and then they go to nursery school and then they, uh, you know, leave behind childhood as they go into adolescence. And each of these stages is a dying and children are full of nostalgia for, for the, their previous state of existence. So the family is what should give us, each child, the, the protection, the security, the, the wisdom, the support to, to go through this aspect of life that we call dying and death. And in other words, what, we're, what the family should be doing is to protect the child from loneliness as much as possible in order for the child to develop the capacity for solitude. But solitude is an aspect of maturity. So what's the difference between loneliness and solitude? Loneliness is the feeling of being alone, of being isolated, of being excluded or of being cut off from the spaceship and flying out into space, uh, like, what's his name, George Clooney in that film. Did you see that film? Um, so the feeling of, it, of, of loneliness, exclusion, isolation, insularity, unable to communicate, unable to be touched, uh, the horrific aspect of, of dying. So what is solitude? As we develop the capacity for solitude, we, in a loving environment, we discover our own uniqueness, who I am, a unique manifestation of whatever, of God, a unique existent being, a sentient being, utterly unique, although we all have, we're all 98% of our genes are uh, exactly the same as chimpanzees, nevertheless, even within that small area, we are unique. There is something unique in us. And even in families where there are family likenesses and characteristics of maybe depression or, or alcoholism or, you know, things that get transmitted uh, genetically or psychologically, nevertheless, there are no two human beings who are exactly the same. Now that can terrify you. Once I met someone who had an experience in meditation and she said, I haven't been able to meditate for a year because I was meditating once and I just had this overwhelming sense of, of being in the universe, being, as it were, alone in the universe. I don't think, you know, you can talk about this conceptually, but not so many people have actually experienced it. And uh, fully, and uh, we don't want to every day. But she, she was so terrified of this that she, she, she didn't stop meditating, but she backed off. So she was only meditating on the surface, probably, you know, saying the mantra just to, until she got 
peaceful and calm, and then she just stayed there. So, um, so we spoke about this difference, because what she, what she was terrified by was the idea of loneliness, utter isolation in the universe. What we discover is that loneliness is a failed or incomplete experience of solitude. Solitude is the conscious self-knowledge, the consciousness of our unique identity, which we have to accept, embrace, live with, and of course, to share. That takes time. It takes time and it takes a certain set of skills that we should learn in, in, a, in a holy family, but if the holy family isn't very holy, then we have to we have to learn in other ways. So loneliness then is a failed solitude. In modern culture, today, there's a deconstruction of basic human structures, including the family. And with this comes a feeling of chaos. Chaos psychological, mental illness, psychological dysfunction, and, well, social chaos. There's no substitute for the lack of a good family. On the other hand, there's no need to spend your whole life complaining about your family and their failures. There's no need to spend your life suffering from the consequences, feeling that you're trapped in the coping mechanisms that you developed uh, in order to deal with this problematical family. Because we do, we, we cope. Children are very resilient. So you can, you can, you can cope, you can survive. But then we learn these methods of survival, but they're not exactly what it, what it means to live life to the full. They're coping mechanisms. They're not ways of growth and expansion, of living. We can also break the patterns that we have imitated from our dysfunctional parents, because however bad they were, they still gave us the basic patterns that we imitate and we learn by imitation, or our early role models. Same is true of any kind of abuse in childhood. We, we understand now, probably, I don't think there's any, I don't know if there's any more abuse today, maybe there is, but probably not in some ways. But what we understand now is the consequences of abuse for life. We don't, didn't realise it before. I think people just abuse children for one reason or another, uh, sexually or uh, physically or making them work uh, too young. And they thought, well, they'll get over it. They're a child. But we now know, without any shadow of a doubt, that those wounds that are inflicted on a child, even you know, at a very young 
age, create lifelong wounds that have to be healed. They can't be undone, but they can be healed. Like your cat bite. It can be cleaned. Did it hurt when they were cleaning it? Oh, it hurt was asleep. Okay, well, sometimes, we, usually we're not, we don't have an anesthetic for psychological healing. It hurts like hell. So, we can be healed, even if it hurts. But we can break these patterns, we can be freed from it. And there's never been a greater need than today for a contemplative practice to be, to be given to children and for us who are no longer children, to develop, which will introduce us to solitude. The family would have done it in the past. Families don't do it today. So, what does it? You have to do it for yourself. No one's going to do it for you. On the other hand, you can't do it by yourself. So you need community. Meditation creates community. That's why we're here at Bombay. That's why the world community of, uh, 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 for Christian meditation developed. That was John Main's profound insight. And um, he came from a very happy family, strong family. He had a strong, uh, you know, Irish family. But, uh, that gave him a fundamental strength and health, psychological health, to be able to see this and to set a pattern for the kind of community that could meditate together at the same time not falling in on itself and becoming introspective and introverted and you know, becoming just a therapeutic institution, but being a place of healing at the same time as being of service uh, to the world. So a community is not a family. It's a spiritual family, we could say, but it's not a family psychologically. But there are similarities. And in that community, as in a family, there is healing. And it's a great challenge to heal. Because we come into a community, we fall in love with the community. Just as you might fall in love with someone and marry them or start a relationship with them. But then there's this idealistic projection. I did it when I joined the monastery. I didn't. And I was very, very happy for, the, for a while. And then it all fell apart. I felt out of love with this monastery that I joined. And the monks, I saw all the faults of the monks. I saw they weren't enlightened. I was much more enlightened than they were. And uh, I thought, how could you get to the age of 90 and be such a miserable fellow? And 
And then, and the prayer, which I loved at first, the rhythm of the life, so beautiful. It's a wonderful way to organize the day. And I hated it, singing all these damn psalms. I know these, these, these men just going through the motions and, you know, all the looking so holy on the outside, but I, you know. So, communities have, can become places of healing, but you have to grow up in it. You have to go through that death and withdraw those projections and withdraw the hope that that community is going to be the family you didn't have. But on the other hand, it's the family you have and it will help you to heal, mature, embrace your solitude and be of some use and value to others in the world, beginning with the people you're living with. So in a community, we, we don't just receive passively what we want or what we think we need. You can only do it by participation. And of course that takes time. Because we come, most people today, all of us, we come with quite a high level of isolation, of, of habituated loneliness. We protect ourselves. That's understandable. And community has to respect that in each of us. And yet, it's participation, selfless, self-transcending participation that allows us to be brought out into the openness that John Mayne says about community, that it brings us out of ourselves into the light of love. And then you might say, how can this bloody group of people that I'm living with, how can they do that? They're all worse than I am. Most. You're probably worse than they are, but we're all as bad as each other in that respect. So something, that's the mystery of God, something, just as something in that Christmas story made all these things happen, created the story of this pattern, so in the same way, something that we call God, the Spirit of God, moves within a community. Bringing, it, bringing the people together in different ways to experience as far as they can at any one moment. And it may take a long time to allow this experience of love, of healing, of redemption to, to reach into those dark places within ourselves. And what are we learning? We're just learning to love. That's what St. Benedict says. The school of the Lord's service in which we do not wish to prescribe anything that is harsh or burdensome, although a little discipline may be necessary at the beginning in order to preserve love so that our shadow side doesn't spill out too much and, uh, and, and create uh, you know, uh, mass murder uh, or psychological harm. So discipline is necessary, but only as a, as a means 
and structure order necessary only in order so that the spirit of love can grow and it can become a community of love. And we have to face death and dying in that process because it's life. Coming into community is not the end of dying. It's learning how to die and learning how to find and keep in touch with that light that shines in the dark even at the, on the shortest uh, day and throughout the longest night uh, of, of the dying process. So meditation creates community out of a, of a very pure and potent kind. It's an intensive process. I know, different kinds of community. But a meditation community is quite intense. It's also very powerful. So the Christmas story, I think, shows us that we are all born into the human condition, that we need each other. We need a family. And we need that gaze of love that we see. Look at the tanker upstairs. That gaze of love that Mary and Joseph and and the Bodhisattvas are all concentrating on the newborn child. That's contemplation. The gaze of love. And that's what we are opening ourselves to in meditation. And if you sit down to meditate and you think you're trying to get enlightened or you're trying to reach a higher level of consciousness or you're you know trying to do this or that then you're really misguided don't say you're wasting your time because but we're simply sitting there accepting love accepting that the divine gaze focused on us through the humanity of Jesus, which we'll look at later, that the divine gaze is is focused on us uniquely. Totally uniquely. But every one of us sitting in that chapel is receiving the same gaze, uniquely. So we don't have to have sibling rivalry about who loves who more. Or does God love one person more than another? That's all of the, that mentality, whether it's institutional religion, which claims to, to exclude other religions, or whether it's psychological, and we get jealous or lonely these 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 are these come out of our, our woundedness out of the wounded ego and that's why meditation we sit in bathing in that love of god as it's focused on us trying well not just trying but actually penetrating through our defense systems and our patterns and our 
our old selves and our wounded selves, it penetrates through all of that naturally. It doesn't, not miraculously, but naturally, and brings about a restoration of humanity. And that's what Christmas is about. It's the restoration of humanity. And meditation takes us into that, into that birth. Okay, this is before we... So this is... Uh, this is after Christmas, but this is when... Uh, they'd come up to Jerusalem for the uh, presentation in the temple, and then when they'd done everything, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, to their own... Nice little Belgian house and cosy village. And the child grew big and strong. It's the only physical description of Jesus in the Bible, in the New Testament. I just thought of it. He grew big and strong and full of wisdom, and God's favor was upon him. And then you remember uh, when he was about 12 years old, when he was 12 years old they went up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when it was over, they started for home, the men in one caravan and the women in another. And because he was 12, he, he was probably, you know, he could have been with his father or his mother. And so it was home alone. They, they forgot him and didn't know where he was. And then they realized that he'd stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know of this. They, ja- they travelled for a whole day. <coughs> they travelled for a whole day and then looked for him among their friends and relations. Extended family. We don't have that. Yeah, he had it. As they could not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, so four days of losing your only son, They found him sitting in the temple, surrounded by the teachers, listening to them and putting questions, and everyone was amazed at his intelligence and the answers he gave. So, gifted child, prodigy. His parents were astonished to see him there. And his mother said to him, do you remember what his mother said? Yeah. Yes. Why have you treated us like this? Why, why are you, you ungrateful brat? Why have you done this? Why have you treated us? I once, uh, I took my godson for a bike ride once in Wimbledon Common in London and um, he went zooming ahead and then uh, when I turned the corner he wasn't there. And uh, I was, I'd lost him. And I thought he'd come back, uh, and he didn't come back. And I was, I was terrified, because you know, you know, it's a big open park and some strange people wandering around. So I felt all of this anxiety that you would, they must have felt when you lose, lose a child. Or could. And, uh, and when... And maybe 20 minutes, he, he got lost away. Anyway, and every time I heard an 
ambulance. Uh, so I thought, oh my God. So it was real help. And then he turned up. And I was relieved and delighted to see him. But I, you know, gave him a hard time. I said, what did you do that for? What did you do that So why are you treating us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Anyway, he, he then says, did you not know I was meant to be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he meant. Then he went back to them, with them to Nazareth, and continued to be under their authority. So he was brought up under, with boundaries, with the authority of love. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. As Jesus grew up, he advanced in wisdom and in favour with God and men. So it sounds not, it, it, it sounds a, a very good human upbringing. Which represents an ideal and the ideal is really realized in in reality but where it fails the grace comes to restore us and that's one of the things that Christmas tells us about what it means to be human.